Well, if you would open your Bible to uh, the 105th Psalm, we are going through some Psalms. We're sort of doing a mini-series on selected Psalms. Jared asked me to select a Psalm to preach on, and the Spirit of God seemed to direct my heart uh, to the 105th Psalm, Psalm 105. We're going to read the entire Psalm. So open your Bibles, please, and follow along. Psalm 105, this is the holy and authoritative word of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, O children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac. Which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number and of little account, sojourners in it and wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he said had come to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent him, released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people and to deal craftily With his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. 
They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and their fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down the firstborn of their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then... He brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Verse 42, key verse. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possessions of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Psalm 105 opens with what some people have called the Ten Commandments of Praise. We've had a series on the Ten Commandments. There's a sense in which in this psalm we find ten commandments of praise. Ten different imperatives from God, the Holy Spirit, telling us what should happen when we gather for worship. Ten commandments of praise listed here in the first four or five verses. Let's, let's count them. Let's go through them. In verse 1, we encounter the first three commands. You can look down at your Bibles if you'd like. The first one is give thanks to the Lord. This is what's to happen when we gather together. Give thanks to the Lord. So when we gather on the Lord's day, there should be in our midst many expressions of gratitude to God. We meet together in order to give thanks to the Lord. You remember Jesus cleansed the ten lepers and only one returned to give him thanks. When we gather here on a Sunday morning, we want to be like the one and not like the other nine. Jesus said, where are the other nine? We want to be the one who comes back and says, thank you. Thank you. And gather together to corporately offer our thanks to him. Second, call upon his name. 
So when we gather on the Lord's day, our worship is not to be silent. That's not to say that there aren't appropriate moments of silence in worship. Be still and know that I am God. But our worship in general is not to be silent for here we are commanded to call upon his name. The same word is used in the book of Lamentations in Hebrew where Jeremiah says, I called out to you from the pit. He was thrown into the pit and he lifted his voice to God. He called out to God and said, do not close your ear to my cry. When we meet together, our voices, your voice should be heard calling upon his name. Well, that's the second commandment. That's the second imperative we find in this verse. The third one is make known his deeds among the people. As we give thanks, as we cry out to him with our voices, we're to do it in a way that our songs and our praise declare and proclaim for all to hear what God has accomplished for his people and for his glory. For us, that means what he has accomplished on the cross to reconcile sinful men and women to a holy God. Make known his deeds among the people. In verse 2, we find three more commands. Sing to him. Sing to him. So as we gather together to worship God, we're commanded here to sing to God. Not just about God. Of course we sing about God. But we're not to simply sing about God. There are occasions and times in our corporate worship together where we sing to him. Here is singing that's consciously directed to God. Which is why when we gather together, you will observe people lifting their eyes and lifting their hands to our Father in heaven to our Savior who is exalted at his right hand. This was a significant revelation to me when I was a college student. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. We didn't sing that way. Oh, we sang, we loved Jesus. But we would sing a song like, How Great Thou Art. Oh, Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder Consider all the worlds your hands have made. We would sing it. We would look at one another. We would look down. I went to some charismatic meetings and they sang the same song. Oh, Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. Then sings my soul. I can't hit that note. My Savior God to thee. To thee, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. So we're commanded here to sing to him, to consciously direct our singing as a prayer unto him. 
I went to I went to those charismatic meetings and I had to think to myself, which way of singing is more like the Psalms? And there was, you know, it was there was no contest. Well, then we see another, another uh, repetition of this. It says, sing praises to him. It's a different verb. So it's sing to him and then sing praises to him. A different verb, literally meaning sing psalms or, or sing praises to him. Again, the idea of consciously directing our praise in song to him. The sixth commandment, the second of the three that we find in verse 2, is tell of all his wondrous works. That's another way of saying what we discovered in the third imperative. There is a declarative aspect to our worship and to our songs. There's a telling of the gospel message that's to be found in our singing, which is why we sing songs that contain the gospel. We are declaring his wondrous works. Well, then we get to verse 3. We find two more imperatives. Glory in his holy name. Now, what does it mean to glory? That's not a verb that we frequently use in English. To glory in his holy name. In Hebrew, it means to shine. It means to shine in his holy name or to boast in his holy name. It means to exalt in triumph, to, to rejoice proudly. I can't help but think of it. It's like when fans glory and boast in their team's success. You know, think the, the, the NLCS and not the World Series. It's glorying in, in Him and in His name. I love this because as we give thanks to the Lord, as we sing praises to the Lord, as we recount the deeds of the Lord in our worship, we all glory in different ways, in endearing ways. I love to look around the room sometimes when we're worshiping. Some of your faces light up. Our brother Jared down here has a grin as wide as a mile on his face. He's glorying in the Lord. Some of your faces light up. Some of you can't keep still. Some of you sing louder. I, I put myself in that category. Me and Dan Welch back there. We begin to exalt and rejoice in something that we're singing and both of us kick it up to another level of volume. We're glorying in his holy name. Some of you laugh. Some of you weep. Some of you lift your arms in the air. Some of you shout. And some stand in stunned silence. Some of you simply sigh in delight. Glory in his holy name. Shine in his name. Oh, let us glory. The next commandment is rejoice. The eighth. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. As we give him thanks, as we call on his name, as we sing recounting his mighty deeds, we do so not out of grudging duty. Well, I guess I have to keep these commands. We don't do it out of grudging duty. But instead we do it from a heart that is genuinely glad. 
In verse 4, we find the final two commands. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek the Lord and his strength. So when we gather on the Lord's day, brothers and sisters, we should be actively seeking something, hoping to find it. So we don't gather in a passive frame of heart, but in a seeking, in a longing frame. If I'm looking for something, my attention is, is focused on finding what I'm looking for. I'm trying to find my keys. I'm trying to find my phone. Or when, is, when I was younger, I'm trying to find my kid. I know that child is somewhere. I'm focused on finding that, that child. Seek the Lord. What we look for when we gather, what we seek is the Lord himself and his strength. Do you come in here sometimes weak? Do you, do you come in here sometimes feeling like, where is the Lord? What's going on? I'm not, I'm not aware of his presence and his activity. We come into this gathering to seek the Lord and his strength in hopes that we would find him and his strength so that when we leave, we're strengthened in God, having had an encounter with the living God through the singing, through the prophetic word, through the preached word. The Lord has met us, and we leave satisfied that we found what we were looking for. We don't come in here passive. We don't come in here with hands folded. We come in here actively seeking the Lord and his strength. And then the second command in the fourth verse is seek his presence. So we're to seek him, but we're also to seek his presence. That is, we're to look for and long for and seek the manifest presence of God himself. God is everywhere present. He's omnipresent. But he manifests his presence in special ways when we gather in his name. And we are here commanded that when we gather, we're to long for, to look for, and to seek his face. To seek the smile of God. Jeff Perswell at the conference this past week, he's the dean of the Pastors College for Sovereign Grace. He made a comment during his sermon that he said he doesn't like to leave his devotions until in some way he has found or sensed or known the smile of God. Through a promise or through the assurance of forgiveness or something else. My question to you this morning in light of this command is are you seeking the face of God as he meets with us on the Lord's day? Are you longing for and looking for his smile? For the Lord to turn his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And then to thank him for it. Well, those are the ten imperatives at the beginning of this psalm. The ten commandments of praise. And what is clear is that Psalm 105 is not a call to reluctant praise. 
it's not a call to reserved praise. It's not a call to restrained praise. Psalm 105 is a call to glorious praise. It's a call to make His praise great and glorious. It's a call to expansive, extravagant, enthusiastic praise. It's a call to demonstrative, overflowing, and lavish praise. Like we see in the 150th Psalm. The final Psalm, Psalm 150, is a doxology that, that characterizes this kind of praise. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Indeed, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now that's not reluctant or reserved praise. We see it in the 47th Psalm. I love this one. In Psalm 47, the psalmist says, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a song of praise. Do you think the Holy Spirit wants us to sing? <laughs> Five times in one verse, God's people are commanded to sing, to sing praises. Ah, Bill, I'm not much of a singer. Sing praises to him, sing praises is the command. Ah, I don't much like singing. Sing his praise, for he is worthy. I can't carry much of a tune. Sing his praises, sing praises to the Lord. Look, singing praises is not an unimportant preliminary to the more substantial aspects of the Sunday service. You've heard this before. Our singing is not only something that blesses the Lord, it's not only something that contributes enormously to the building up of our own souls, it's actually a part of God's plan to reach the world. We are declaring His mighty deeds. It's part of God's plan to reach the world because no matter how dark, dreary, and depressed the world becomes, the joyful sounds of hope will be heard in the churches around the world. No matter how sun-scorched and withered and dry the lives of people around us become, songs declaring the eternal hope of the gospel will flow out of the hearts of the gathered saints like streams of living water in the deserts to thirsty souls. I can't tell you how many times I've, I, I've talked with someone who I didn't know. When did you start coming? You know, I started coming, you know, so many years ago. And, you know, what drew you to the church? You know, I walked in and I heard the singing and experienced the worship and I knew God was here. I gave my life to Christ. Our singing is actually part of God's plan to reach the world. Now let, let me turn a corner a bit in this sermon because there's actually an 11th imperative here found in verse 5. And it's the command to remember. And this, this command gets at the main point 
that the psalmist is trying to make. Remember, verse 5, remember the wondrous works that he has done, the miracles and the judgments he uttered, O offspring of Abraham, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. The command to remember is addressed to the offspring of Abraham, and that includes us because those who are in Christ, the son of Abraham, if we are in him, the son of Abraham, then we also are sons of Abraham. Those who have the faith of Abraham are, in fact, the offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So it's addressed to the sons of Abraham, and it's telling them to remember the spark that ignites our giving of thanks is remembering something. The catalyst for joyful worship and praise is remembering something. The key that unlocks praise and rejoicing in God's presence is remembering something. And what we are to remember is that God remembers. Psalm 105, verse 8. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. If I were to attempt to summarize the message of Psalm 105 in a single statement, it would be this. Psalm 105 calls us to exuberant, joyful singing and praise in good times and in bad because God will never forget His covenant promises to us. When you remember that He remembers, that is the key that unlocks praise in good times and in bad. I said in good times and bad, and that's because the first time that Israel sang this song, the first 15 verses of the song were composed and sung in very good times. The first part of this psalm was initially written as David dedicated the Ark of the Covenant in the city of God, in the city that God had chosen. He dedicated the Ark of the Covenant in the city of God with great rejoicing. It was a very happy occasion in Israel's history. God had given the people great victories under David, and they had entered into a season of fulfilled promises and great revival. So when this song was first sung in 1 Chronicles 16, there was every reason to offer exuberant praise to God. There was every reason to sing, every reason to rejoice, every reason to give thanks and call upon God and glory in His name. But Psalm 105, with the history of Israel appended to it, was in all likelihood composed during Israel's exile. When God's people had no immediate cause for exuberant, effusive thanksgiving and praise. In good times and in bad. Right. There's something we must remember. Israel had just lost everything. Their nation was gone. Their place of worship was gone. When this psalm was composed, 
They were in exile. Their families had either perished or they were scattered across the Babylonian Empire. In fact, in fact, God's people were on the verge of extinction. It was a very bad time. And the question that we must ask ourselves is, how do you worship God with rejoicing from the heart as this psalm commands? when everything familiar and comfortable is gone. How do you worship with rejoicing from the heart the way that this psalm commands us to worship when you've been reduced to a small and scattered remnant, when everything has gone bad? How do you sing songs then? How do you rejoice and glory in the Lord then? And the answer is by remembering, by remembering that the Lord remembers, that he remembers his covenant forever and he has not forgotten about it. The rest of the psalm supports and teaches us that no matter how bad things got for his people, God always remembered his covenant and acted to fulfill it. We, we saw it. We see it in the history of the patriarchs. We see it in the story of Joseph. We see it in the story of the Exodus. It's all supporting this idea that no matter how bad things got for his people, God always remembered his covenant and then acted to fulfill it. Right. In recounting the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in verses 6 through 15, the psalmist retells the story of those patriarchs in a way that directly applied to the exile's dire circumstances. He emphasizes that back then, in the days of the patriarchs, Israel was very few in number. Do you see that in verse 12? They were few in number. Well, the exiles are now few in number. The psalmist notes that God's family was of little account. Verse 12 also. Well, the exiles in Babylon were also of little account. The psalmist draws attention to the fact that back then God's covenant people were wandering from nation to nation. Verse 13. Well, the exiles were also wandering from nation to nation. And the psalmist's point is that even though God's chosen people were extremely fragile and vulnerable in the days of the patriarchs and their very existence was threatened, God remembered his covenant with them. He rebuked kings on their account. He would not allow foreign powers to touch his anointed ones. The implication that these exiles were to draw from that is that if God remembered the covenant back then, and if it's an everlasting covenant, lasting not only to the fourth or fifth generation, but to a thousand generations, if indeed it's an everlasting covenant, then God will remember his covenant again. Amen. Though he has brought us into dire circumstances, surely he will act to protect and preserve us. Yes. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make his deeds known among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Well, we see the same thing in the retelling of the Joseph story in, in verses 16 through 24. The psalmist again goes out of his way to tell the story in a way that would lift the hearts and the faith 
and the praise of these exiles. Just as Jacob's family was driven out of the land by famine, they had been driven out of the land by an enemy. Just as Joseph was sent away as a slave and as a prisoner, they had been sent away as slaves and prisoners. Just as the word of the Lord to Joseph in his dream tested Joseph as he waited for it to be fulfilled, so the word of the Lord about a return to the land was testing them. They could identify completely with Joseph. And maybe you can too this morning. Maybe like Joseph, you've been forsaken by family members. Maybe even most of your family has forsaken you. Maybe you feel alone and imprisoned. Maybe to you the promises of God seem as if they will never be fulfilled. What is the use of even holding on to hope? And the word of the Lord to you is the same as it was to these dear exiles. Remember that God remembered his covenant promises. And because he did, he will act. Joseph experienced a stunning, a stunning and sudden reversal of his fortunes. And God can and will in due time do it again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. He will never forget his covenant. Well, then the psalmist retells the Exodus story in verses 25 through 44. After Joseph, Egypt turned against God's people in hatred. And God's people were enslaved for over 400 years. But in the fullness of time, God raised up Moses, verse 26, who performed miraculous signs and judgments, which the psalmist then recounts in verses 28 through 36. Then God brought his people out with silver and gold, verse 37. He gave them a cloud by day and a fire by night, verse 39. He fed them with bread from heaven, verse 40. He sustained them with water from a rock, verse 41. And he brought them back to the land. The exiles, again, could identify. A new exodus is exactly what they needed. They needed the foreign land that was holding them captive to be humbled. They needed to come out provisioned with silver and gold. They needed food and water and protection on the way home. And then they were to take hope from the reason that God brought the people out. We see again the theme of this psalm in verses 43 and 44. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy and his chosen ones with singing. Now when that verse says that God remembered his covenant, his promise, it's not like he got busy with something else and it slipped his mind. His eye was always on his people all along. He never stopped caring for them. When it says that he remembered his promise, it means that he acted to fulfill his promise. 
The implications that the exiles were to draw is this, that God acted to fulfill his promises then. He will act to fulfill his promises again. He will bring us into the land once again because he will not forget his covenant. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Sing to him. Sing praises. Brothers and sisters, remembering that God always remembers his covenant is more than enough reason to praise him even in bad times. The new covenant that we have is a better covenant than what they had. It's got better promises than the promises that he gave them. And it's sealed not in the blood of bulls and goats, but in the blood of the Son of God, which will never lose its power. In the new covenant, God promises the forgiveness of all our sins. In the new covenant, he promises to present us faultless before his glory with exceeding joy. In the new covenant, he promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. In the new covenant, God promises to uphold us beneath his everlasting arms. He promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He promises that the church will grow to a number that no man can count with a multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation. In the new covenant, God promises that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He promises that even if we die to be apt, when we die, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He promises us a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy that will last forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. So, let me invite the band back. So, whether you find yourself today in a season of great abundance, or if you find yourself today on a road that's marked with suffering, where there's pain in the offering of praise, remember. Remember that God remembers his covenant forever. Remember that he will never forget his covenant promises to us. And remember that he will act to fulfill every single promise he has ever made. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Amen. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Amen.